0: And welcome to the Inkling podcast. I'm Rifka Brown and I'm Helen Charman, and we're the editors of The Inkling, an arts and culture magazine that celebrates the essay form. You can find us online at theinklingmag.com and in two print editions, stocked at Foils, The Tate, and also online.
1: Each episode will have a theme that brings together two of our previous essays, which we'll announce the week before the episode's released. Episodes will be split into three parts. An editorial, where we'll give our spin on the episode's theme. A feature, which will be an in-depth discussion on the theme. And a pull quote, where we'll draw on texts related
0: to that theme. We hope you enjoy it. And if you've got feedback, ideas for future themes or guests, you can talk to us at hello at inklingmag.com, or via Twitter at The Inkling UK or Facebook, where we're at The Inkling Magazine.
2: (music)
1: One of the most telling things about the different ways in which Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump use Twitter is their sign-offs. Clinton's team, following POTUS and FLOTUS, used the senator's initials to indicate tweets she's written herself. The ones she hasn't follow a formula borrowed either from Upworthy, at FLOTUS just gave one of the most powerful and emotional speeches of the election, read it here, or our high street bank. Go to HillaryClinton.com forward slash calculator to see how much you and your family could save under Hillary's student debt plan. Their tone ranges from emotional constipation to pure corporate speak. In other words, there's nothing particularly human about Hillary's Twitter. It's so obviously strategized, even templated. Take Clinton's glassy top-right stare in her profile picture, her now-famous woman listening face, which shamelessly copycats Obama's Twitter. We get around one tweet from H in every 20. The real Hillary is hidden behind her own media storm. Meanwhile, at real Donald Trump, our man's staring straight into the camera. Trump's team don't bother with initials or sign-offs. Instead, everything's written in the same off-the-cuff, repetitive, exclamatory idiom in which Trump himself speaks. Whether or not his media team are pulling the strings, the important thing is that none of Trump's tweets sound like they're from the shady corners of a media strategy room. On the contrary, we're given to imagine Trump hastily firing them off from a solid gold bathtub, or at least I am. Quote, Basically nothing Hillary has said about her secret server has been true. Hashtag crooked Hillary. There's no need for authentication. It's so obviously Trump. In fact, it's almost painful to imagine, although this is almost definitely the case, some over-caffeinated press officer channeling the Donald to tweet, quote, the media and establishment want me out of the race so badly, all caps, I will never drop out of the race. We'll never let my supporters down. Hashtag MAGA. Needless to say, people love it. Between the 16th and 20th of September, 2016, Clinton tweeted three times as much as Trump. But she got five times less likes per tweet, and two-thirds of the total likes. The key to the real Donald Trump success, other than perhaps troll-feeding, is his apparent realness. The media smokescreen is there, for sure. It's just invisible. Despite being old enough to be her father, Trump is of the same pedigree as Zoella, the vlogger whose online success, like Trump's, could be attributed to her seemingly unscripted spontaneity in her videos. The seeming single-handedness of her social media empire. The seeming access she gives her unicorns to the real Zoella. There was a time not long ago when politicians were rewarded for cultivating rhetorical skill. Now these are the public figures' social media favours. Real straight-talking Donalds, not wonkish jargon-blathering Hillary's. What does this worship of the unmediated mean for politics? Are we finally cutting the crap or just buying into another kind of it? In this episode of the Inkling podcast, we're talking insta-politics. Joining me in this episode's feature will be Christy Garrett, social media editor at CNBC in London, and Tommy Shane, digital engagement manager at the House of Commons, master's student of digital and culture and society at King's College London, and the author of the recent Inkling article, Straight Talking, the Insta-Politics of Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn. We'll also be drawing on James Moran's 2014 Inkling article, Politics and the Facebook Bubble. You can find both articles on our website, theinklingmag.com. So I thought I'd start off today by asking you a bit about something that Trump's director of New Media, Justin McConney, recently talked about. McConney's a guy that you actually mentioned in your article, Tommy. He said that the two most important things for a celebrity on social media are to be authentic and to give your fans what they want. I'm kind of interested in this phrase, give your fans what they want, particularly in relation to politics. What might happen to politics if it migrates onto social media and how might the kind of power balance between politicians and the electorate change? I think we're already seeing this, to be
3: honest, and I think the trajectory of Donald Trump is the perfect example of that. He is giving a certain demographic exactly what they want and he can
1: serve it straight to them on social media. Do you think, Tommy, that this channel of communication between politicians and people has perhaps made politicians more responsive to what people want rather than publishing a manifesto and fingers crossed it it goes down well?
4: Well, I think what social media offers you is just lots of data. So if Donald Trump puts out a load of tweets, he knows which ones do better. He knows how people are responding to them. That means what you can do is give a very superficially pleasing narrative that people will like and share. But in terms of what people actually want, what people want for their families, what people want for their country, do those people really want all the Muslims to leave? What I think they want is something that is easy to digest, easy to retweet. It doesn't necessarily make people and these politicians interested in using people's ideas to make better policy. What I think it does is encourage people to consume really easy answers that they're gonna like and they're gonna share, but those aren't policies. So it does make people more responsive, but responsive perhaps to the worst aspects of what we seek from politics.
3: And I think it's interesting because you can see it's it's not Donald Trump, he's definitely not the only one doing this. And Hillary Clinton's campaign has gotten a lot better at jumping on board with this. And you can actually see it. So Michelle Obama gave the speech. It got a rousing, you know, approval from everyone on social media. It went viral on every news publisher's website. And so what what did Hillary Clinton's campaign do? They had several quotes from Michelle Obama going into Hillary Clinton's feed. Yes, she was going out and she was speaking in some. Support of Hillary Clinton, but it wasn't Clinton. And they knew okay, this speech was very, very popular, so let's grasp onto that and get a ton of likes in return.
1: So is what you're saying that there's a danger in social media politics, Insta-politics as it were, creating this sort of mood board effect. And, and rather than actually having to generate policies or manifestos themselves, politicians can almost just crowdsource things that they like in the, in the way that you might just retweet something on your feed. Yeah, I think it's possible.
3: But I, I do agree with what you were saying about data. I think it can be used for good and it can be used for bad. But you can take a look and say, OK, I tweeted this thing out and it got a lot of negative response. I think once earlier in the campaign, uh, Hillary Clinton got ridiculed because she sent out a tweet using lots of emojis. And it was a bit like it, she was belittling her voters. And you know, Hillary Clinton pro- probably had nothing to do with that tweet. It was probably her social media campaign. But they they never did it again because you got that immediate feedback. Whereas if you were broadcasting this out on air, maybe you wouldn't have heard and people would have been, oh, they're loving the emoji campaign when really people hated it.
1: And so, in a way, it's just an extension of what politicians already have been doing for a long time. You know, we know very well that David Cameron's government was infamous for being the sort of market research government and using user feedback to inform policy. And in a way, this, as you were saying, Tommy, just provides more real time market research.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was Tony Blair that was actually kind of the real pioneer of using focus groups, Bill Clinton as well. And they both kind of used that to extraordinary effect. Um, So this has been going on for a really long time. And there's you know there's lots of software and it's all legal software it's not you know gchq where the government can and do listen to conversations all the time it's called social listening software and they listen to things that people are talking about based in different locations how they're responding to the budget what are they saying about fracking what are they saying about the sugar tax and they can do, I mean, I don't know, I think it's called like sentiment management or something like that, which in itself is just quite a sinister idea. But that's what's going on. And so it's not just Hillary responding to her own tweets, it's Hillary listening to all of them. And companies do this just in the same way that the government do. So tell me
1: about sentiment management quickly.
4: There's software that can judge the sentiment of a piece of writing. So like a tweet, for example. Now, at the moment, it's really bad. It doesn't work very well. It
3: doesn't capture things like sarcasm. So if you're like, well, that speech was great and you meant it that way, it will take it as a positive sentiment Mm. analysis. But it is getting better by the day. It is.
4: And what often happens when artificial intelligence is in its infancy, what you actually do is you get the artificial intelligence tasks outsourced to humans. Mm. So this is something that Amazon do a lot. Mm. And this is what they do with sentiment analysis. So you'll basically just get a person mm. to take a, few, like a thousand tweets at random and they will judge whether it's positive or negative. Mm. And then you amass this data and you work out what is driving people to feel negatively about something that the government's done. Mm. And then you can build a campaign around that data. Mm. And you can target it, you can multiple iterations of it, so you can do certain versions. You can do multiple tweets at once and yeah. see which ones perform yeah. better. Yeah. So I think you know when we're talking about the power balance, it might seem initially that the citizens are getting to direct the politicians by telling them what they like and what they don't like. But actually, you're giving the politicians quite a lot of power because they have more information.
3: And what's really powerful about it is before, like you said, we had market research. You could have people go door to door calling people during their dinner saying, what do you think of this policy? What do you think of that policy? But now it's instant and it's cheap. So we can do as much of it as we like. And like you said, it's it's not just politicians, it's companies too. And I think we've all probably had that magical moment where you make a complaint about a company on social media and they appear and they say, oh, so sorry to hear that. Like, how can we help you? Yeah. And you didn't even direct the tweet at them. People are very much listening, but you have to keep in mind all of these tweets and Facebook messages, we're, we're putting them out into a public sphere. So it's not like they're hacking into our accounts to figure
1: it out. So, in his 2012 article, The Personalization of Politics, W. Lance Bennett argues that, quote, social fragmentation and the decline of group loyalties have given rise to an era of personalized politics in which individually expressive personal action frames displaces collective action frames in many protest causes. People often point to the Arab Spring as a kind of example of how social media catalyzed mass political action, but do you think it's maybe the exception rather than the rule and that? You know, social media is encouraging us to act in a very individualistic way with politics rather than contribute to a mass movement.
3: No, actually, I, I agree. I just think that these movements are more fragmented. So I think it's potentially contributed. I think, you know, the right's going further right and the left is going further left. You're finding a lot less of parties coming together and agreeing on issues, which in theory, is what makes up politics and what makes government great. And that's because a lot of people are hearing from their own sounding board and and they're starting to feel they are (laughs) becoming more deeply ingrained in their beliefs and you'll see this with movements as well so it's been great for things like feminism it's been great for things like Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. it's been great for things like the anonymous movement or maybe fringe parties like the Mm -hmm. libertarians in in the U.S. and the Green Party a lot more people are speaking up and that's been great for that. But then you also see it's a lot more polarizing. So you'll see trolling, you'll say, see people saying, oh, I absolutely disagree with this. So it's done a bit of both, to be honest.
1: Yeah. But so are you saying that it's it's been good for causes like feminism and civil rights, because it allows those movements to gather momentum and really entrench themselves in kind of online communities. Sure. Is that sort of what are saying? Because before with the
3: Arab Spring, if you felt certain things but had no way to know if other people were feeling the same, now this gives people a gathering place so they can make those movements take it from online and take it into the streets. I think we've been seeing a lot more protests and better organized protests because of that.
4: Just gonna say I think the the basis upon which those people get on to become part of those movements is really interesting. And I think one of the things that has been touched upon in that quote is that there's with the breakdown of institutions like party identification, church as well, mm-hmm. trade unions, that kind of general fragmentation, yeah. people are kind of identifying with movements on the basis of personal identity. So I I'm a certain type of person, not in my name, just we, Charlie. These are all highly individuated ways of identifying with the movement as opposed to we. And I think it does tie in with social media in that you do represent yourself on social media. Yeah. I think a really interesting example of this is the, the kind of marketing campaign around I, Daniel Blake. There's the, the hashtag, we are Daniel Blake, and this kind of collective identification. Mm-hmm. And then there's also I am Daniel Blake, and there's been this whole kind of, movement. but And it's interesting to see those two models with the I and the we kind of come up against each other. But Jack Monroe, her whole argument in her recent Guardian article is about, you know, what kind of person are you? And the idea is that I am a good person and therefore I will join this movement, not this is a problem for all of us. And that's why we're joining this movement. And yeah. I think That's where the difference is.
1: It becomes more about individual virtue than it is about policy and politics. As it were. Do you think that though movements are able to immure themselves from criticism or opposition more easily? I know you talked about trolling, but trolling? Trolling? <laughs> Who knows? Something like Corbyn's movement. There was you know not a huge amount of difference between the first time he was elected and the second time he was elected and there didn't really seem to be a huge amount of serious debate about whether or not he was a competent leader it seemed like once a Corbynista forever a Corbynista and once people had sort of pinned their colours to the mask that was them and it and it has disabled political shifts and political changes of heart or really just political analysis.
3: Well, I think this kind of touches on something else you brought up in the articles where people aren't seeing as much opposing views in their feeds. You can be of two minds about that and say Facebook is deliberately controlling our news feeds because they want us to be happy and then that will make us buy more stuff. But I think it's also user behavior. You're going to follow people on Twitter more than likely that you agree with. You're going to like posts and read posts more than likely that you agree with. And so that's slowly molding our feeds into a lot of what we agree with. And that's why things like the Brexit result, that's why things like the general election, we had so many people who were shocked and said, how is this even possible? I mean, from what I saw, everyone said it was going to be a Remain. When actually Twitter later came out and said 60% of Twitter users were saying that they were in favor of a Brexit and those users were tweeting a lot more. Which just goes to show that what we are seeing in our feeds isn't necessarily an accurate representation of the world around us.
1: Yeah. Do you think that kind of social media platforms are built to reinforce that sort of echo chamber? For example, the fact that when you respond to something until recently on Facebook, it had to be positively You could only like something. And if you were to share it, it would usually be to your personal kind of feed. And so you would have to kind of affiliate yourself personally with it. There was no easy way to sort of share something in a more dispassionate way or kind of neutral way sort of what do people actually think about this and it's on Facebook I find occasionally friends of mine do post things which they don't agree with and do try and instigate discussion around it but it very quickly gets shut down it kind of Facebook drives us towards consensus perhaps.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think it's deliberate, or you know, maybe it is, and I don't know. There's a giant conspiracy. But I think it is just the way the algorithm is designed. First of all, people share things that they're passionate about. They're not going to be like, well, look at this very well-balanced argument. I mean, some people will, but the majority are going to say, heck, yes, I agree, or this is complete crap or you know and and that's how people share and that's how people like and like you said yes until very recently you could only like a post so there was a lot of incidents working in publishing where you had a major news story, maybe something tragic happening, but it wouldn't make it into people's feeds because people weren't liking it, because they obviously felt Didn't uncomfortable like about <laughs> that. And it was a weird thing. And that's why they had to
1: introduce this range of reactions you can now have on posts. Yeah. Um, and why people in their Twitter profiles often say, retweets aren't endorsements. I want yes. to share your stuff, but it doesn't mean that we're we're agreeing.
3: Yes
4: and the the multiple reactions also give facebook and the people that use facebook commercially more data it's telling you how people are reacting to it whereas maybe there was some ambiguity in a the like there's less ambiguity now that it's kind of refined how you can respond i mean i i would i would argue that facebook absolutely is designed and its algorithms are designed to give you things that you like mm-hmm. and i think in some they they're, they're quite transparent about that i mean they they're now adopting a policy where they will share content that people read for longer. So if you actually click on something and you actually spend longer reading it, it will show that to more people. And that's to kind of cut down on things like clickbait because Mm. your experience of using Facebook is not going to be as good if you're just plastered with clickbait and you're not enjoying it. But if you are spending a long time enjoying it, they want to give that to you because they want you to stay on Facebook. So in some ways, it's not like a conspiracy. It's just they want to make money and they want to make their Their product as good as possible. But what that means is that, yes, they're probably going to serve you posts that you're going to respond in a positive way that's going to reinforce your worldview.
3: I will say the exception on this is family. Family. And friends, I'm going to keep them anonymous, but there is a pretty close family member who we disagree about a lot of things. And so eventually I had to kind of do the thing where you actively go in and mute them because it was just so frustrating and I didn't want that tension to work its way into my family. But... This is how smart this algorithm was. It continued bringing up family photos, but just not the articles that were upsetting me because I said, no more from this person and I'll just figure it out another way. But they were still popping up. So I think the way those do sift through are people who are actually close friends or family connections. And sometimes you don't realize that you have differing opinions until an election season or a referendum comes around. You say, oh, really? I thought we were completely in accord with this. But a lot of times you don't discuss those things with friends.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I I agree. It's probably the times when I get the most heated about politics are with my family, because with friends and with acquaintances, I suppose, you tend not to discuss politics in a heated way because you don't want to upset people. But with family, who cares?
4: <laughs> but also you don't choose your family. And so yeah. but you do choose your friends and, and and that reflects itself offline as well. So I think it's important just to remember that this isn't an online only phenomenon. I mean my circle of friends we all basically agree with each other and in terms of like a bubble that's a you know incredibly tight bubble mm-hmm. and that mediates my experience of the world and the information and the opinions that I get fed and get reinforced but you don't choose your family and they might have you know completely different ideas to you and it's the same thing with with friends who you kind of got at school and you weren't really making friends on the basis of where they shared your worldview and they kind of crop up on your mm. newsfeed. And sometimes they can be your own, your only kind of anchor with the outside world. I, I kind of love it. Like I love these like random old friends I have on Facebook because they're the only people that share yeah. content that's different to the stuff that I normally see.
3: You do get that different perspective of uh, these are people who are not living in London where you have a very different view to if you're living in somewhere more...
1: Going back to what we were saying about social media platforms and their role in mining data and all sorts of kind of roles that they play in politics, given that broadcasters, as you know, and publishers, when it comes to election time, have to be very careful about the way that they balance and mediate between political parties and candidates and the electorate. Do you think that social media platforms have an equal responsibility to kind of police or balance political conversation? For example, does Twitter have a, have a responsibility to correct Donald Trump's counterfactual tweets or Hillary Clinton's counterfactual tweets?
3: I think they'd like to stay out of it is the easy answer because that's easiest for them. So we saw that recently with the controversy over Facebook's trending topics. So that used to be a curated list of trending topics by trained journalists, you know, in Facebook's basement somewhere. And what they started finding out, you know, that overwhelmingly more liberal news articles were surfacing and less conservative. So there are some huge news publications that are very conservative and are constantly ranked among the top, the most engaged publishers on Facebook. But they weren't surfacing very much. And so this created this whole controversy. And and shortly after, they actually abandoned this editorial team. And now it's completely just done by a magic algorithm. The issue with that is sometimes you will have fake trending topics. You know, when everyone pulls a fake death and you see it trending on Twitter or Facebook, there's less control for things like that now.
4: But what I think the, um, the trending topics example shows is that these social media platforms already are policing this political content. Mm-hmm. And I think the dangerous idea is, is thinking that they're not doing that. I mean, they've got a kind of editorial team and this is what most people are kind of calling for is them to be transparent and to have an editorial policy because they are doing it. And it's not just from trained journalists. The There's a kind of like a common idea that algorithms are somehow neutral, mm. but they're not at all. They've got humans designing them and they constantly make what are essentially ideological decisions about what is trending. I mean, it's not just the most tweets. It's Twitter has a very complex algorithm to determine... Things on the basis of what's new, who is tweeting them, what diversity of people, what geographical location, what speed are these tweets coming? All of these things are decisions that they make and they govern what is and isn't seen. So I think the really important thing is is for them to be more transparent about how those decisions are made.
1: What do you think about Snapchat displaying a filter on users' Snapchats on the day of one of the debates between Hillary and Donald Trump that said crooked Hillary versus Donald Trump and had clearly been sponsored by the Trump campaign? Is that okay? That's very
3: interesting, actually. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to purchase a Snapchat filter nowadays. I mean, people do it for their weddings, they do it for corporate events. So, yeah, someone could very easily take advantage of that and make it a political statement. And that's where we start getting into a bit of a dodgy area because if Snapchat said, okay, great, this is just a messaging service where you hang out with your friends, fine. But they are becoming another way for news organizations to publish. I mean, they have their Discover channels. They have several news organizations on there. And at what point do you have to differentiate that?
4: Yeah, I mean, Snapchat's a company. So they're just selling some of their kind of virtual um, real estate to the Trump campaign. And as long as that's adequately signified, you know, this this message is approved by Donald Trump, you know, then the idea that Snapchat is somehow this superior form to something like television, where they've got all these TV adverts, and they've got TV shows that will kind of have leanings, and they'll feature on them and things like yeah. that. I think the dangerous idea comes when company like Snapchat is elevated to this superior platform that it, you know, shouldn't be making has different ways of making decisions and should yeah. be thinking differently. It's not a
1: moral arbiter, it's a commercial. Uh,
4: exactly. It's a company that wants to make money and, and it will it will leverage US election campaigns just in the same way it will do football and it will do a celebrity cat.
2: You're
1: right. <laughs> it's tragic. <laughs> Speaking of cynicism, Adam Curtis's new documentary, Hyper-Normalization, argues maybe politicians aren't politicians any longer. They've become instead pantomime villains whose real job is to make us angry. And when we're angry, we click more. And clicks feed the ever-growing power and wealth of the corporations that run social media. Clearly, Curtis shares your kind of cynicism about the role that social media organisations are playing in politics. But I think... What he's overlooking when he says that is the way that anger isn't a new phenomenon in politics. What is an interesting question, perhaps, though, is how has political anger changed? And perhaps you know, Corbyn is a good example of this. How have politicians changed the way that they're harnessing anger using social media?
4: Well, I think I think anger is a, a really really interesting topic and I think that it's something that as you say politicians have been stoking for a really long time I think the question is what happens to that anger does social media provide a way of kind of managing that anger providing a pillow to scream into rather than actually wanting to do something slightly more constructive
1: That's, I think touches on what I feel, which is that the kind of anger that is stoked on social media is that just more gratifying anger, because as we know, anger is something that is enjoyable to express online, which is why trolling exists. So is there a danger that the kind of anger that Donald Trump is generating when he tweets something ridiculous about kind of Mexicans or Muslims isn't a constructive anger, but a purely kind of self expending anger.
3: It's interesting because I think anger and actually hope, if we wanted to take it back to Obama's campaign, are two things that get people to the polls, right? If you're really angry about something, you're going to make the effort to get out there on a rainy day and wait in a queue to get your vote in. If you're quite happy with how things are going, you say, okay. It's not as big of a driver. But... What's interesting, and I saw this with Obama's campaign, is he built up such a large feeling of hope and everyone said he's going to be a miracle worker and everything's going to be solved overnight and that's why there's so much anger with him. Generally in Europe we don't feel that as much, but in Europe uh, they are very calm in Europe. Yes, yes. But in the U.S. people are very, very angry and they're like, he screwed everything up, he didn't deliver. I think the same thing could possibly happen with anger. So if people are saying, you know, I'm just so angry about this, but this guy, he, he gets it and he's going to go and he's going to deliver this. And I think it's already sort of started to happen with Jeremy Corbyn. You know, he hasn't gotten elected. He's not going to go and turn parliament upside down in one quick swoop. And then people get angry because they say, well, you didn't act on my anger. But politics isn't that easy. And I think people really fail to understand that. And you're promised the world during an election cycle, but it's not that simple. And one person
1: actually doesn't have
3: that much power.
1: And perhaps that's the illusion that social media puts us under, that action is immediate because tweets are immediate and social media content is immediate. Responses are immediate. You know, conversation is instant, but real political change, as you say, takes time and can't be fired off from your living room. I think the last question I wanted to ask, because I think generally it's been uh, a relatively, I suppose, sceptical rather than pessimistic, is whether you think there are any opportunities, the ways in which um, social media can be can be harnessed as a tool for for politics.
3: Oh, absolutely. I think the main thing about social media is it is giving causes visibility. And yes, not everyone's going to agree with them. But I don't think the Black Lives Matter movement would have happened without social media, the Arab Spring wouldn't have happened without social media. There's just so many different causes that people are able to band together and realize they're not alone. Even if you know, we're not going to eliminate racism overnight. It has people talking and it has people from other races talking. It's not something that's confined to, you know, the black community anymore. Other people are saying, wow, you know, I didn't realize, you know, police violence was such an issue or, you know, we're actually seeing the videos and getting to judge for ourselves, you know, whether this is fair or not, as opposed to a verdict being handed down to us by a court. And that's really important important, whatever side you stand on the issue. I don't think before you had as much support, particularly for like minorities and people who don't come from loads of money that can't go and bribe a politician. No, but it it has given so much more power to the ordinary people.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think when you speak about minority movements, I think the trans community is a good example of that because the black community are a you know, significant demographic. The trans community are significant, but small, at least as far as we know. Except their cause has been given increasing visibility. You know, over the past few years, by major celebrities, but also grassroots movements. And I think that that just couldn't have happened to such a concentrated community without social media. And I, th-
4: I think a lot of it, a lot of it's to do with things like online communities and safe spaces. But I think it's also about the fact that. Someone who is trans can connect with someone who maybe is around the other side of the world who's also trans and that can build up a sense of collective identity that isn't limited to where they are in the world. And that's the real kind of opportunity that I think we can see and hopefully we will see with social media. It's about being able to connect with people, you know, in this fragmented world. That is what gives people power because it's that collective identity and that the group strength that you can get through that. And yeah. that's only going to happen through digital technology. Yeah,
3: the group strength and the ability for people who are not in that group to actually hear from people. Because I, I think that's a big thing. Several people, if they don't live in a city or just haven't come across someone who is, say, trans in their day to day life, they don't know a lot about it. And so it's easy to make assumptions and you can understand how these things happen. But then say you see a powerful video on some sort of social media of someone who is trans talking about their experience, that's the closest thing you may get to that one-on-one connection that will all of a sudden cast a bit of light on what it is to be you know, something you're not. And I'd, I'd hope that that would have brought around more people to different causes
1: yeah I think I mean I like to think that it is perhaps just a matter of time even if that is quite a long time and I think I'd go back to what we were saying before about social media is instant but change is not instant and even though you might be able to upload a a video of your kind of experience of a transition you may not be able to persuade everyone instantly that gender reassignment is a normal part of human life But at least you start seeing that these people are human. Mm.
3: And I think that's really important.
1: Well, sadly, we've run out of time and there's a lot more to talk about. But I'm sure we will continue the conversation after the recording. Thank you so much for joining us and being our first guests on the Inkling podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. This episode's pull quote comes from a little-known author called Will Shakespeare. Helen and I have fretted over whether including Shakespeare in our first episode might be a bit like announcing your leather fetish on a first date. But after much hand-wringing, we've decided that when it comes to political rhetoric, nobody says it better than shaky.
0: We're going to play you a clip from Julius Caesar, Mark Antony's famous Friends, Romans, Countrymen speech, read by Damien Lewis, a rather appropriate choice given his political drama credentials. It's almost impossible to hear this monologue afresh now, But it's uncanny how much of it chimes with the no-nonsense political rhetoric touted by Donald Trump and co. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, concedes Antony, but here I am to speak what I do know. Despite claiming anti-intellectualism, he is not dealing in proof or disproof, and claiming to shoot straight from the hip, Antony, like Trump, manages to convince the citizens of Rome that there is much reason in his sayings. Like Trump... He convinces the citizens that he is no glassy-eyed politico, but the real Mark Antony, so moved by the sight of his friend Caesar's dead body that he must pause, but not before he's planted the seed of doubt in the minds of the Demos with the repeated refrain, Brutus is an honourable man. It's pure ars calare artem, what Tommy talks about in his article as a use of rhetoric to feign artlessness. History speaks for itself. It's Antony, not Brutus, who ends up as Caesar's successor. Say hello to the original demagogue.
2: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often interred with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all, all honorable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause. What cause withhold you then to mourn for him? Oh judgment thou art fled to brutish beasts and men have lost their reason Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. <laughs> The
0: Inkling podcast is executive produced by Helen Charman and Rivka Brown, who also hosted this week's feature. Thanks go to our wickedly talented theme composer, Jack Bloom, who also mixed the show, as well as to Splice TV for giving us a recording space. And thanks lastly, and most importantly, to our fantastic guests, Christy Garrett and Tommy Shea.